Thundergrunt. Welcome to Writer's Blockbusters, the show where we treat the final edit of a movie like the script. I'm one of your hosts, Bob Rose, at Thundergrunt Bob on Twitter, and the other guys are going to introduce themselves right now, starting with Jamie. I am Jamie Nash. I am at Jamie underscore Nash, and I usually save this for the end, but since it's coming up, I'll be at Austin, the Austin Film Festival at the end of October. So for the two people that intersect this podcast and the austin <laughs> probably one person uh i don't even i probably know you, who they are you <laughs> i could i could just email myself uh but i'll be there at the end of the month so if for some weird reason you're listening to this podcast and you will be at austin um show up with the special writers blockbusters code word of i don't know what it is <laughs> And you will get a special prize. So if they, if they no, walk up won't. to you and say rooting influencer. Rooting influencer. You have um, to buy them a drink. No, I'm kidding. I, yeah, I was thinking of some bingo card related <laughs> yeah. thing to yeah. say. Like, it tracks. I, yeah, it, it tracks. tracks yeah. Yeah. Say it tracks and you will receive a special <laughs> prize. Don't tell anyone. Now I have to come up with a special prize. I'll have it in my pocket the whole time. It'll be like my business card. Or Just something. give out some hard candy or something. Yeah, exactly. Some yeah. Something I get on the airplane or you know it'll be that Peanuts, it'll be, yeah. yeah it'll be that card you know that <laughs> that says how to put your life preserver on you know a true fan they'll be like oh my god i got jamie nash's airplane card you so, know? yeah exactly signed by <laughs> signed me i'll nash. sign it i'll sign the airplane card i'll smuggle it out of the airplane this guy wrote it. to save the cat book man that's right exactly <laughs> and that that might inspire your next screenplay right all right. Well, I uh, am uh, Jimmy, Jimmy George. Yeah. <laughs> I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, and my Twitter handle is at Jimmy R. George. And you're not giving out any prizes, huh? Okay. No prizes. Well, disappointing everybody. Come on. Man. <laughs> what kind of uh, podcast is this? No yeah, prizes. No prizes. We have to Why give even away, do like, it? We need to give away like concert tickets and stuff. <laughs> like, for the next three callers. Wait a minute. Robert are... McKee tickets. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. By the way, it's fucking did you, expensive. <laughs> did you see? Did you see the last Robert McGee's last seminar? This is his last one. This is oh, your really? last. This isn't an ad, by the way, for Robert McGee. If, <laughs> if, if you've the whole always, show has been an ad for Robert. <laughs> if if you've always wanted to go to Robert McGee's seminar and see it live, you can always see it taped because he did tape it during COVID. I'm sure that's part of the calculus here, but. He's doing his last live ones this year. That's what I saw in the. I got an email or something that said that. I, people ah. that listen to our show would be interested to know that. So he's, yeah. he's finally yeah. retiring at the end of this year. So this is your last chance. Go to New York, L.A., or London to see him. Wow, retiring like the king he is. Um. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> today we are going to talk about. Uh, a movie that is currently being rebooted, remade, rehashed. I don't know what the term is for how the continuity works, but we're talking about the original 
Hellraiser from 87, the Clive Barker written and directed original. OG. Uh, the OG, the first right. one. And we're it's, and it's being re-raised. That's what we should re-raised. say. Re-raised. Yes, re-raised. That's pretty good, Jamie. Um why Jamie gets the big bucks. That's right. That's re right. The re or something. And, we're, and just to be clear with everyone, we're only, I feel like I say this for some franchise movies, we're only talking about the first movie. We're not, mm-hmm. we're talking about the writing of the first movie as if we had only seen the first movie. Did, does the new one have a subtitle? Is it like hell? No. It's just, blood, it, it does blood, Halloween. Halloween just like Candyman, Scream, yeah. Halloween, now Hellraiser. I, I was going to go with Hellraiser. Wrong turn. Rises. <laughs> yeah, it's just another rises. I, you okay. know what? They've beat me into submission so much that I don't even complain about the title thing anymore. Nah, nah. it used to enrage me. I hate <laughs> the fact that there is movies with the same title. Old man the yells at cloud. There just shouldn't be movies with the same title, but whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I just always like mentally substitute part two. On the end, <laughs> I don't understand why they can't just call stuff like Hellraiser 2022. Yeah, right? like just call it that. That should be the official title. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, they only did that in 2000. It was Dracula 2000. <laughs> I know. Let's bring it back, man. <laughs> yeah. Just put fucking years after shit now. Who it cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> this is um, this is sort of off topic. Or it's on topic, but <laughs> off topic. Like the rest of this podcast so far. <laughs> So, it's fine. Jamie doesn't have a heart out. We could just. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I always. This is funny. And I, Buckle I mean, up. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, our relationship to Hellraiser. I that's guess. what I was going to. I was trying to get to. <laughs> OK. But for the first time ever, I, I started to debate. Is the Hellraiser. Is it Pinhead or is it the guy who uses the to the box? Is he the Hellraiser? I yeah, think we're going to think it's a double meaning. Mm-hmm. Right. All but, of them. But I don't know because then it goes into sequels and it's like Hellraiser two. Well, and, and are those people as, raising hell or as they... we discussed, as we discussed, yeah. like the sequels kind of clung to Pin Pinhead, right? Like that's the point. He became the icon, so that yes, in the sequels, I would say that Pinhead is in fact the Hellraiser. In this movie, it is debatable. Okay, does that make sense? So yeah, and it is worth noting and relevant uh, that the original plan was for Julia to be the villain of the series. Like, Mm. not just for this one, not just for the second one, but if they were going to continue with the franchise, Julia was going to be the supernatural entity villain of the series, not like a Cenobite. And uh, the actress didn't want to do it. So She hates er horror movies. (laughs) Did she? That makes... Okay. yeah, she doesn't hate the movie. She's just like she can't handle that that material. doing that. I am yeah, I Which can is totally I understand valid. Yeah, totally handle, valid. Handle for, as, and especially yeah. for these performers with yeah. this type of material, they're having to go to a really dark place. Oh, you guys, you guys are wrong. She's letting us down. <laughs> she let us down. Don't let her. No, off. but but it, Jamie's it, hot take gonna, from like an angry YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. It's gonna yeah. bleed into a lot of the topics that we talk about but like i was really struck by you know when we go to you know deconstruct the the movie by like yeah pinhead's not really that important to this movie no and uh it was very much like the first friday the 13th where it's like jason isn't 
the killer his mom is he's like he's some on the side so that even just just, well even just thematically like the story isn't about pinhead or right no not at all but okay before we get there let's just go around and say our relationship to this movie like we do with the classic episodes okay because this is this is a true horror classic. It's an '80s horror movie. Mm-hmm. Is, Jamie, why don't you go? It's a, it's a prime movie to talk mm-hmm. about. This. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> I'm, what year did this come out? Eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Right? 87. Yeah, so would it put me at? I'm trying to figure out how old I was. I yeah, was five. <laughs> so, yeah, I, was I was seven. Yeah, I was fifteen. So, um, this was this movie. Uh, Clyde Barker, in general, when I was that age. He became really huge in my life. Like he was a big influence, um, more so for his books in some ways. Like after Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2, I'm not even sure if I saw Hellraiser 3. I probably did, but I vaguely remember. Um, I was huge. Like I was first in line for Nightbreed when that showed up in the theater. Um, but the books of blood were huge for me. I remember I got them for Christmas. My my birthday is actually that's hysterical. Right, yeah, it's right. It's right, <laughs> right, right down the, my birthday is December 20th. Right. So send me cards on December 20th. Man, you're a Christmas mm. baby. Okay. Yeah. So I used to always get presents that I'd be like, well, I'll be off for the next month. And then I was a book kid. So get me books. So the Hellraiser, the books of blood. I remember I got somewhere around this time and I devoured them and they were like my favorite. And part of it was I was, if you asked me like four or five years before that, or two years even, or maybe even then, and you asked me, I would have said I was a sci-fi and fantasy person, but I also read all the Stephen King and Dean Arcoon's books. So it was this weird mix. And I think Clyde Barker was the bridge that showed me they could all be kind of related in some ways. It was kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, but also Freddy Krueger in some weird mm-hmm. way. Um and so they were very influential for me, especially the books of blood, which get really weird and funky, you know, in, in their own way. Um, Damnation game, all those books. So I became a big Clive Barker fan. But in some ways, Clive didn't produce material fast enough for me or something like he didn't come out with a new movie every few years. He came out with a Hellraiser. He did Nightbreed. Lords of Illusion, I think, came kind of further along. And um, was, I think mid 90s, I think. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I. I think I just fell out of, um, you know, love with it. Like he was my guy for a few years. And then because he wasn't churning one thing out a year that I was, I was reading his books and stuff. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't as I, I kind of wasn't, I didn't track with him as much just cause he didn't have the material that I wanted, like the movies and the, and the books. But at this time, Hellraiser was a big, was a big movie it only made 14.6 million which is a lot of money uh that i have on the box but office i the guess it was 900,000 though right absolutely so it's a huge hit but my point being i don't think everybody saw this movie it wasn't like the jason movies or the friday the 13th movies it's, it's still it's not, it's not a party movie it yeah it still felt like i was <laughs> no. it, it 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 kind of you know it, it fed that like high school thing of like oh i watched I watched the cooler bands and you watched the popular bands a little bit like me liking Clyde Barker was a little bit different than everybody else seeing Freddy Krueger or something like that, even though I saw that too. Um, but Hellraiser felt while it was popular, it wasn't like the mass popularity that these other things had. At least that was my take on it when I was 15 years old. It's the primary car movie. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Like I got 
I felt kind of cool to be like, oh, my favorite is Hellraiser. Yeah. I think it was it was that Reanimator were the two I'd throw out. Right. Like I'd always be like, Reanimator is my favorite, dude. You know, <laughs> and Hellraiser. <laughs> we got to do Reanimator at some point too. Oh my god, yes, please. Anyway, that's that's my story yeah. with with Clyde, yeah. Jimmy. Um, so you know, 1987 is one of, I think it's my favorite year for movies. There's so many classic ones, and this one ranks high for me. This, I think, this is. Uh, maybe a lot of people are unfamiliar with the movie Pig. We talked about Pig. We did an episode about Pig and how Pig is the anti um, John Wick. You know, like I think this is the Pig of horror movies. It's like going the other direction uh, in a beautiful, like memorable, like resonant ways at every at every step of the process, you know, with the character work, with the horror, with the structure, with everything, it's, it subverts it all in a way that at a time where like everything was like pretty cookie cutter, right? It was sort of like the heyday of the slasher movie, the 80 slasher movie where everyone was getting chased down by a, by a mass maniac or an unmasked maniac women, like teenage, teenage women, uh, getting killed by a mask killer or a man without a mask. And here we have a woman um, who's like in her thirties um, hunting down men for her like sexual fulfillment, essentially to, to gain sexual fulfillment. So it's like really weird. And I'm sure that, you know, we're, we're three old white dudes and I'm sure that um, women would have some, some insight into this story that we couldn't give, but uh, yeah, I love this movie and um, I'll give my one little Hellraiser anecdote. I used to have a DVD player um, that was like, I bought for like $20 a no name DVD player for like $20 that would allow me to play movies at double speed with the volume on. Um, so like, if you try to do that now, it doesn't work. They just, they're silent, but you could, everything sounded like micro machines. So when I was studying movies, I was able to absorb them very quickly. Um, and, uh, I used to watch movies for study like we do for this show at two speed. And, uh, there was a situation where I was hired to, uh, to do a paid rewrite for a movie with a Hellraiser inspired, like I didn't come up with the killer the people who were hiring me did like the producers. And so I was hired to um, do like a rewrite on this. And, um, and I was like, okay, well I have very little knowledge of the sequels. So I basically watched at the time. There were only seven. This was like many years ago, over a decade ago. I watched all seven Hellraisers on fast forward in one sitting. <laughs> so I could make sure that I wasn't, uh, th so that I make sure I had an encyclopedic knowledge of of the franchise and so that I can make sure I wasn't unintentionally being derivative of the character because I had never seen five and six and seven. So, yeah, one day I sat down and from morning to night, I watched all seven fast, all seven uh, Hellraisers back to back. And it was the worst day of my life. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I once did that uh, with a group of people for a podcast. I the, oh, like starting at like five a.m. Oh my gosh! It was it was it was brutal. Not not necessarily because of the movies. It was just brutal of an exercise to do. It's but brutal. It's yeah. Brutal. I did the same thing for Saw's 
for the yeah, saws. Same. I did that for the same other podcast. <laughs> oh, um, what a soul are you, killer. <laughs> are you are you done? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I was going to say uh, to respond, Jimmy, to your thing about how us being three old white dudes, we might not understand, uh, you know, that sexual the sexual tension of this movie. Last night, I am not kidding, organically on my Twitter feed, someone just had a, a picture of the main character of this movie just smoking the cigarette. Remember the scene where she's just smoking the cigarette? Mm-hmm. And, like, the tweet was just, when the D is just that good. <laughs> and it was a woman tweeting it, and it had, like, 10, 15,000 likes. Wow. And that, well, yeah, that's I mean, it's just I saw it last night organically, not because I was looking it up. Mm-hmm. And I was just saying that's sort of the vibe that Hellraiser. That's left the vibe. The that's the anti heroine is just that good journey. Right. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, uh, for me, I'm the youngest of the three of us. I'm going to be honest here. I came to Hellraiser after I knew about Pinhead's iconic uh, mm-hmm. stature, probably somewhere in the mid to late 90s is when i first watched hellraiser i i didn't have the relationship that jamie had with the books or anything like that i just knew about pinhead because he was talked about often and because of jason because i had looked him up because of jason goes to hell and because he was constantly one of the figures in mad magazine that was always like when they did their horror issues they always had like you know the icons doing funny stuff i was like okay there's pinhead that's that guy okay i get it so i came to this with that perspective. And then when I remember when I watched the movie, I absolutely loved it. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. And it was nothing I ever expected. Like I fell in love with it instantly. And I was like, oh, because in my mind, uh, to what Jamie was saying, I was just expecting Freddy Krueger. I was mm-hmm. expecting Hellraiser to be some kind of right. just demon that shows up and kills kids or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, and I remember watching this and, you know, in the nineties, I was still pretty, I'm young. <laughs> like, and I was just like, this is like nothing I'd ever seen before. So I felt like, it, yeah, it, it did feel even in my little world of watching it on VHS, it felt like it opened up a whole new, a whole new realm of what horror could be for me, you know? So it's not, it's not nearly as cool or impressive as you guys, but, because <laughs> I just watched it like on VHS by myself, but it's still cool, Bob. Right, but I but Pinhead was already Pinhead, and I was coming into it like that, and I was like, oh wait, Pinhead's like barely in this fucking movie. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I don't, I didn't know what to expect. So yeah, um, I but I absolutely have been in love with this series ever since. Even the the bad one, there's a lot of bad, but I still, you know, one and two, three. <laughs> Yeah, I like three. Yeah, I like three. Three's the goofy one. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely a, a, one of the best ever. Um, one of my favorite horror movies ever. So like, Just because one of my favorite things to do, and Jimmy mentioned it, I did look at Domestic Box Office for 87. I just had to go back. Go ah! go do it. <clears throat> I love doing this. Um, so it's, it's interesting because 87 was kind of a year when I think Hollywood really figured out the machine, you know what I mean? They were cranking on all cylinders, but the Reagan era really started clicking it, but it doesn't have like the one definitive, like empire strikes back or, you know what I mean? Or whatever huge movie Beverly Hills cop or was predator like 87 predator, predator was 87. It came mm, in lost boys. Yeah, it lost came boys. in 10th. Um, the number one movie was Beverly Hills cop two. Uh, so Beverly's Cop was still around. One of my favorite movies of all time, sir. RoboCop, right? It's got to be Ro- in there. RoboCop, 
RoboCop as well. I was Dirty Dancing is in there. Dirty Dancing. What a year. Um, what a year. Uh, Platoon, which was huge Man. for me. That was another big movie. Oh yeah, for I me. Um, I mean, I don't love Platoon. I mean, yeah, you know what I mean. Fatal Attraction, The Untouchables, yeah, yeah. Three Men and a Baby, and then here's here's the one that always stands out to me because nobody ever talks about this movie. I mean, we all know it, and everybody that listens probably knows it, but The Secret of My Success. Yeah. Like, like people kind of snooze on how big that movie was, you know, back in yes. I've always said that's the perfect double feature with American Psycho, because American <laughs> Psycho is the horror version of that movie. It's the same themes, and the characters have the same desires, but it's like the total opposite genre, and it's treated differently. <laughs> like, it's, I it's, love that movie, though. I've seen it so many times. That's also where the Ferris Bueller song is for me. <laughs> the Ferris Bueller song comes from that movie because I saw yeah. that first. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I, I mean, I it I always remember it from that movie more than Ferris Bueller because Ferris Bueller has so much other stuff going on. But right, right. That that's what I remember about that movie is like him sneaking around in the bushes or something, and they're playing that music. Anyway, it's, uh, it's at night when they're all uh, that's, very relevant that's to Hellraiser is. at night. Yeah. When, when everybody in the house is trying to have sex with everybody else and they're playing the right. Ferris Bueller song. Right. <laughs> I, I mellow, whatever it is. It's funny. When I look at this list, I think I saw all of the top 20 in the theater of, of this because I'm looking man. at Outrageous Fortune. years, man. Absolutely. La Bamba. I did, you know, I didn't see Dirty Dancing in the theater. So that would be the one I didn't see in the top 20. Oh, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs re-release. I didn't see that. Movie. Ah, okay. Full Metal Jacket. I saw the Full Metal Jacket. Out. I mean, what a year. A Nightmare, what a year, Elm, man. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3. 3. Yes. God. Mannequin. That's a year. Mannequin. Roxanne. Uh, Blind Date. Spaceballs. Um, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home comes Man. in at 25th because it's it was released November 26th, probably. Ah, uh, gotcha. So they kind of penalized it. The Golden Child, which was a big movie for Love me. The Golden Child. Um, I saw all of these in the. I, how many how many times did I go to the movie theater when I was a kid? <laughs> Planes, trains, and automobiles. The Running Man. I mean, I must have seen 60 movies in the theater. That <laughs> I'm just it's, amazed. So if, the Lost Boys. I, so then. I, to me, I got to say the best two years of the '80s for releases was '82 and '87. Yeah, '87. If you look man. at if you look at '82, it's nuts. It's like everything we love '82, but '87 is pretty great too. So yeah, yeah. There's two yeah, amazing even, movies. Even though even like the lesser movies on here, like Police Academy Four, I saw that in the theater. Still one <laughs> of the best Police Academies. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Murphy Raw, I saw that in the theater. You That's know, huge. I mean, in Gosh, the- three Eddie Murphy titles in that list. Well, that wow. 80, I mean, 87 would be Eddie Murphy was literally the king of Earth at that point. Yeah. You know, Ho- Hoosiers is on this list. Man. Raising Arizona is on Man. this list. Man. I saw all of these movies. Ooh. I, I, I must have been in the movie theater like my entire life in 1987. <laughs> we're just going to sit here and Jamie's just going to read off titles. And, and we're going to go, like, yes. Oh, yeah, say it. <laughs> it's Preach. Say it, Jamie, say it. Preach. Yeah. Hard, no, Jamie. Cinema. Harder. This is blowing me away how many there were. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of amazed because I, I know I saw if them all If you read this like, list weekend. to a kid right now, they would They'd be like, like Sounds I'll, like I'll watch the YouTube shit. review of it. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking back. Honestly, I saw every one of these. And even going down the list to 100, it's like Masters of the Universe is on there. Love it. All, all these Superman. I'm saying, man, 87. Movies. 
Mm. I saw batteries not included. Hellraiser. Hell yes. I mean, <laughs> that's Bob. It's happening. We're just yeah. doing exactly I mean, what you just said. This. This... <laughs> Creep Show Two, American Tale, an American Tale, Prince of Darkness, Hamburger Hill. I saw all of these in the God theater. Damn, Everyone. Man. Um, that's crazy. Just anyway. fucking bangers after bangers. No, yeah. this, this is the most um, eye-opening thing because I I might have seen a hundred movies in the movie theater in nineteen eighty four. So Where did not, I get the money? Not, so the point is, Hellraiser didn't come out when like nothing else was <laughs> happening. No, yeah, it came out in the thick of shit, and it still stood out. That's, yep, uh, that's what we can take away from it. Yep, yeah, it came. It, it like well, it's Clive Barker, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Speaking <laughs> of that, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Speaking of the man, wait, who Angel, wrote... Three Amigos, <laughs> and the Mist. <laughs> Radio Days. Uh, wait, are Ish- those all? Are those all actually titles from? Yes, 87? Ishtar. God, yeah. man, really? Yes. I'm blown away by this. I told you. I'm blown away by this. That's the best year. Yeah, man. Crazy. Jeez. Jeez Louise. All right. Okay. Sorry. I have to to go away from, because probably in the next 100 to 200, there's probably more. I could could just spend a whole year watching movies from 1987. Mm -hmm. Probably. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Clive Barker, speaking of the person, the writer, the author, Clive Barker, who wrote this shit. I'm just answering that question, James. Bob subverting expectations. I'm subverting answering like it himself. Yes, this is the Clive Barker of writers blockbusters. It, it Bob was, is the Bob is the killer, not Jamie. And, um, and, and by the way, <laughs> I, I have the book versus movie thing, and we can talk about that super quick because there's not a ton. Yeah, there's, we might as well talk about it. Let's now. talk about it. Yeah, it sure. started out as a book. I, I reread the book this year for some reason. I can't remember why exactly, but I, I re or last year, maybe, maybe it was 2020. I don't know. Cause everything blends together now. Um, but the book, the book is really short. It's like a novella. It's about 160 pages long. Um, and it's not that different than the movie. It, it never names like, Pinhead, pinhead. Obviously, that's something that Wasn't just he the came. Priest or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's something like that. The daughter isn't a daughter. She's like a family friend. So okay. that part's a little mis- mixed up. Um, and then in the beginning, it loads you up with kind of exposition, like it takes you into Frank's mind in the beginning, like buying the puzzle box, and so it turns out it makes a meal out of that. Like that's so and it, the movie it, just. The movie kind of lets yeah. you figure it out as it goes, but it lays out the Cenobites and the warnings and all that stuff way up front in the story. Um, the one Doesn't thing, the book called the the cube, the lament configuration. It does. Something? It yeah. does. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it mentions the lament configuration, yeah, uh, yeah. which which comes into play in the later movies. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, as far as a word, um, it doesn't have like that that bat creature and stuff at the end. In fact. Um, in preparation for this, I did. I looked at like some of the bullet points because I was like, maybe I'm missing some things that were changed, but really I wasn't. There, there wasn't. It's very similar in some ways to the book. I think you'll get a similar experience from both. I don't remember the end, and honestly, the end of this movie, which we don't really talk about here, goes off the rails a little bit. It kind of <laughs> they come up with this cheesy special effects, like the visual effects, like with the laser beam things and stuff like that um, coming out of the box. On the IMDb trivia, they say Clive Barker said that he and a Greek guy, quote unquote, did that in one weekend. Yeah, it looked like they drew on the actual film. That's yeah, what it looked like to he, me. It, he had some quote about it and he was like, they were both extremely drunk. Yeah. It, 
It, did, it didn't look like an optical printer. Honestly, looked, the thing that just, sucks about, and this is not, this is not screenwriting, but whatever. No. These visual effects were made for standard definition viewing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We weren't, when I first saw this, I remember the first time I got the DVD and I watched it. I, the VHS, I never saw the seams. The effects were so good. And, and it's one of those things where I feel like, you know, the HD and then the 4K does. I think these old horror movies and the effects, they often cleaning it up often does a disservice to the experience because uh, the people who were doing those types of work, they were doing it mainly for people who were going to see it on a ultimately on like a 13 inch television. I don't know if I don't agree with that, but well, they're going to see it on the big screen yeah, for yeah. like three months and then never again right. on a, bet- on a clean yeah, they knew that it was going to be on film though and projected yeah. large. But I, okay. I just, uh, I always feel like, like these, these movies get uh, the the 4K cleanup does a disservice I, to these movies and makes the effects look worse than they did when they I, first came out. To me, that doesn't make sense. But I've always been like, the effects don't matter I, to me. So, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I'm like, passionate like, about this, obviously. I for love my, FX, my movies. Um, um, I th- I think George Lucas needed to come in and throw a bantha in there or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, just to mix it up. I don't um, mind seeing old movies in their full res and seeing seams. I never have. But, my yeah. my my thing with the end, and this really isn't a topic, but it felt a little bit like, um, oh, we have to be one of those Hollywood horror movies now. So the girl needs to run away from the monsters for a while and have the box, and and we're bringing in some boy. Who's barely in the movie? <laughs> He's going to be in there. So it too. felt like a studio decision. You felt it felt like, and I don't think it was a studio decision, but it felt like a little bit of this is what the people want, the kids want, you know. So we got to really amp this up. So they they extended it a little bit. They they made it like she's zapping people with the box almost when she presses the buttons and stuff. Um, anyway, I it it's just one of those things. It was it, you know all the movies did that. I remember when I was back in the eighties when I saw in the eighty seven when I saw. 300 movies in the theater. Um, I think every horror movie ended with a knife chase with a girl running around the building or a monster. And it kind of got a little bit running around the house. You know what I mean? Like it's a foot chase battle sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just kind of a thing that they did. Uh, You know, it was like, oh, we need to put this in. We could do anything else in the beginning, but this has to be there in the end. I don't don't think this is one of the topics, but it does sort of, pivot to a a a fresh final girl midway even it does you know what i mean like it turns her into. no i think this is the very first topic let's just go into it it. absolutely oh yeah oh yeah Yeah. right this is good timing to talk about this yeah plan that so that's how (laughs) that's how good i am today subversion subversion (laughs) yeah that wasn't even a transition that was just me talking and and i think (laughs) I think it actually rolls right into the log line as well. Uh, yeah, that's but, why I put it up front. Yeah. I think one of the reasons the movie does feel so unique is that there is no protagonist, but it never feels lost to me. You know what I mean? So, there's no, there's no, there is a protagonist, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure of it and it doesn't feel lost. Yeah. It's this really unconventional approach. So we're all in agreement that the movie just swaps protagonists intentionally. Totally. Yeah. Intentionally. Which is really fucking weird. And most um, it's di- totally different all. from the psycho approach where you have a false protagonist for right. the first act and then we have the actual protagonist. This is 
we have a protagonist, clear protagonist for the first two acts, and then the third act is a new protagonist. Yeah. So it's yeah. really weird. It's it's almost closer to The Shining, you know, or something like that. Um, yeah. May, maybe closer to Alien in some ways when we saw that. Um, though the, the difference is the girl in this is almost an afterthought. She doesn't live there. She barely shows up. She's not involved in the setup. That we don't much know much about call. her. She yeah. doesn't. She's, yeah. she's like uh, the half man for Julia. As in, right. like, she's yeah. warning the audience yeah. about Julia before we ever really know. You know they, what I mean? They don't set her up to get a character arc or anything. Yeah, like they don't. That, right. You know, um, right. But it works. She's just a girl that we need, and somehow all these characters I like, even though they're none of them are likable and have your typical rooting resume. You know? Yeah. That, that we kind of do. You want to swap? You want to scoot down there and then go back to the log line? Because I yeah yeah we. Yeah. We could kind so of jump we're, around. We're gonna, just be clear. I feel like we didn't really give an answer. We all feel like there is no actual like protagonist with a question with like a star next to their name. I, uh, I do. I do think the woman. Uh, I think Julia is the. Protagonist. I was gonna say. Okay, yes. that's why I wanted it. Yes. Some kind of what answer. I'm trying to say is, I like, would argue Julia is too. I but, think it's very unconventional that she like Kirsty. So so I think where it changes is at 55 minutes, Larry tells Kirsty. He suspects something is like deeply wrong with Julia. Right. And then from then on, Kirsty's perspective. So we're talking like 35 minutes. Kirsty's perspective takes center stage. And then 15 minutes later, Julia's dead. And then the last 15 minutes, our protagonist has been dead for 15 minutes. And it's just Kirsty and her survival takes takes our our rooting interest. Right. Yep. So it's really fucking weird. Also, and it works. And I think that's instructive. I also, this I, also, be like, I also feel like her, like Julia's death has always, to me, said so much about Frank's intentions. And yeah, dude. Because it's, it's, so it's almost unclimactic. Oh. It's so like, hey, by the way, you didn't mean shit to me. Yeah, dude. You it says so just... much about Frank. You know what oh. I mean? And it's unsure of how much he cares until that moment. Like, yeah. you could almost believe he was just as in love with her. Yeah. To some, to some he degree. was using sex as a weapon. To get so, his yeah, way. It's, yeah, it's it the perfect so much about premise yeah. reversal. Oh, yeah. It's yes. so much about him. I. It's interesting that these kind of protagonist switches, I think you mostly see in horror movies. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't see an action movie where Arnold is in it for 50 minutes uh, and then suddenly somebody else. Jamie, is I can it? only think of executive uh -oh. decision where Steven oh, Seagal yeah. dies in the first 15 yeah. minutes. And yeah. It's a Russell Crowe movie. And that, that, that's kind of a rug pull scenario. Not Russell like Crowe, Kurt Russell, sorry. Kurt yeah. Russell. Yeah. They're, they're trying uh, Kurt Russell Crowe. Um, that, I just woke up. Sorry. That's, that's almost like the more psycho version of it, where it's mm -hmm. kind of like they trick you. They're yeah, like, that's the false protagonist. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. A, a lot of you will see this in horror movies from time to time and while the shining comes to mind in some ways uh because a lot of times it's somebody that has a descent and then they become the villain in the right. end um and and the only difference in the shining is we get plenty of the person the person that we're going to switch to is in the movie a lot like it's it's a b it's not mm -hmm. like oh the side character then comes in and becomes the protagonist which it would be like if jaws killed off brody and then Hooper was the Hooper, star yeah, for the last weird. 15 minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, yep. Jamie, but you, do you want to circle back? We'll do We'll talk about the rooting interest. Yeah, sure. sure. And then we can circle back to the log line. Cause I do think it's mm -hmm. all related. I agree. It's I agree. all sort of like 
they all work together. So I didn't, did you want to start this to be, see where, say where your head was at with yeah. asking this question? I mean, the only thing is I, I wrote this down as a question. I, I wrote, are, are any of these characters likable? Um, because, and, and usually you've, you have that rooting resume, that thing that checks the boxes of why we're going to root for them. So even if they're bad people, we kind of get that they're underdogs or they have some relatable thing or we, we have a hope for them. That's why but, like Seinfeld works or uh Yeah, there's there's <laughs> some there's some potential in there or something that we kind of like them anyway. In this movie, it's in the the strangest part about it is I kind of do like them anyway. I think it's great casting and you know some other things cuz I you know Julia is the one that do we like her? Is there like a lot of times what a movie would do like this is they give her good reason to have her longing for for frank right uh we the you establish all these like the world puts her down and and her right. husband's mean or to larry her. yeah larry's a piece of crap or R something larry's a piece right. of crap he's, he's not. not giving her what he wants yeah but larry's this kind of stiff super normal dude and it's it's kind of funny this movie is almost like i don't know if it's the british uh-ness of clive barker but it has this weird vibe right where they're all wearing they're wearing suits when they show up for the first day they're like always wearing a tie you know he's like Time for breakfast. I'll wear my tie. And um, she's always wearing a dress and has her like earrings on. They, they're like not that. slovenly Americans in any no, no. <laughs> typical sense. Yeah. And, and I guess that hints at sort of a repression that adds mm -hmm. to that sexual tension we'll talk about later I mean, on. Right. Like, and it, I was going to say, like, to some degree, uh, her pushback on Larry, who's not, I don't, I don't hate, I don't think Larry's a good guy. He seems right? fine. He seems yeah. fine, like, guy, yeah. but he seems completely like the whole movie is about how they're de they're demons of experience giving mm -hmm. you the extreme pain and pleasure of you know of the mind and of of reality and larry is like the exact opposite and i think in that's every way the thing. right yeah like he's that's know. the problem though for right. her yeah mm -hmm. um yeah yep. so i i didn't do the jamie's rooting resume but for context to people or who are listening who haven't listened to our previous episodes um, we talk a lot about how a character doesn't need to be quote unquote likable. They just need to be relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've given many episodes, like if you go back and listen to the Joker episode, um, there's something called rooting influencer techniques. And we found that there were 15 rooting influencer techniques for Joker in the first 10 minutes. And they just keep coming and coming and coming. And so I didn't do the rooting influencers, but there's another thing from Blake Snyder's Save the Cat, which is called The Things That Need Fixing. I know you guys know what I'm talking about, but I'm talking to listeners who may not have heard of it before. So um, one technique that you can do to get the audience to connect with your character, even if they're not quote unquote likable, but we can still find ways to make them emotionally relatable, is to give them what Blake Snyder calls The Things That Need Fixing. And um, these things come in five categories. I'm going to list the five categories and then I'll go and give examples from this movie that I think they track. I think it tracks. Um, bingo. Uh, bingo. Um, so these things come in five categories. They are uh, changes in attractiveness, false beliefs or personality, strained personal relationships, not being entrusted with responsibility or not being able to handle responsibility, being invisible to key people or seeking invisibility, 
and others don't believe in you or you've given up on yourself. So first, I'm just going to go and give I, I pulled the description, even though I haven't read Hellhound Heart, I, uh, Hellbound Heart. I'm going to pull the description of Julia from the novel. He says, Julia's a very complicated character, lost, lonely, pissed off with her husband. She's much more interesting than your average horror movie heroine. It's funny that that's on the page. Yeah. Um, so Clive Bar Barker refers to her as an anti-heroine, um, which we don't talk about that often. We talk about a lot anti-heroes, but we don't say the phrase. It's, I feel like it's un an underused phrase, anti-heroine. So um, changes in attractiveness, false beliefs, and her personality. I'm saying that the movie, it's very measurable that in the flashbacks with Frank, Julia is softer. Her skin looks better. She's brighter. She's healthier looking. She's fucking happy. She is like way more comfortable in her own skin in her flashbacks with Frank. In the present day, she is mean. Her skin is pale. She's nauseous all the time. She's sick and she's vomiting. Like she's also it's, seen smoking a lot. It's very like, measurable, she's, right? So she's got anxiety so, and yeah. Yeah. I think you could say that this is a, these are things that need fixing right there that we see that clearly makes her relatable. Um, strange personal relationships. I mean, she has strange personal relationships with Larry and Kirsty. Kirsty literally says she's uptight and frigid. And um, number three, not being entrusted with responsibility or not being able to handle responsibility. Larry works all day while Julia is just left at home expected to be like what a housewife. Her, her, the responsibility aspect of her character is like non-existent in that, like everyone around her, like is like not expecting anything of her. Right. You know? Um, so I think once again, that's a third thing that's clearly needs fixing in her life and is relatable. Number four, being invisible to key people or seeking invisibility. I think it's both. I think you can say that Julia's sexual needs are 100% invisible to Larry. Um, and her emotional struggles, struggles are invisible. Like they have that dinner party where all their friends are coming over and she's like going through all this shit and no one has a clue. Right. Like she's complete. Yeah, who, like, who, 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 go ahead, Bob. I was going to say Larry. It's not that Larry actually cares that there is something wrong. Mm -hmm. and he wants to fix it, but he has literally no concept of what it could be. What it in, could be in any capacity. <laughs> like, right. And yeah. as a result, she seeks solitude. Right. The only person she wants to be visible for is Frank. Right. Um, and so, so I think that fourth thing that needs fixing is very measurable. And then we have the fifth one. Others don't believe in you and you've, or you've given up on yourself. I think it's very clear and measurable that she's given up on the, on the possibility of a sexually fulfilling life. Like she seems very lonely, very sexually unfulfilled and very upset and depressed about it and just yearning, right? Like she's fantasized from the second to get in that house, she is fantasizing about having sex with Frank because that was a time where she felt fulfilled, right? So I feel, and desire, that speaks to the whole movie, desire. So I feel like all five of these things that need fixing are very measurable, and that makes her a very relatable um, lead, you know? And, and And so despite the fact that her goal is so unconventional for a, hero, a, a, a horror hero, I think she fits all of the, all of the standard um, approaches that make for a good setup for a character that we're that we're would following you, for this for the duration of the movie. Would you guys also agree that like everything you just said, Jamie, uh, Jimmy, 
um, like in a lesser movie, I feel like a lot of that stuff would have been said out loud by a character. Mm-hmm. All of it is execution. Everything you, you said it. was execution. It's all on the screen. It's all performed. It is, but not, you don't hear them say. You don't hear them that. say yeah. it. She doesn't say, "Ah, oh, I'm so sexually unfulfilled." I'm sexually unfulfilled. <laughs> yeah, like or she I'm, have a conversation. You don't see me. <laughs> right. um, that, that, that's how I saw the new reboot. That's how they do it. <laughs> you don't do entrust that, me with responsibility. Jamie, I will love it if they just had somebody scream the obvious. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> It's like um, uh, Marissa Tomei and uh, and my cousin Vinny. Like, right, right. Don't you say my heart's pumping here. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. She just screamed. My relationship with you is strained. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm a flesh and blood I, woman. I want a zombie demon to fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how they fixed it in the reboot. <laughs> yeah. She just says it all out. But yeah, so yeah. so Jamie, that was really good that you asked that because I wasn't planning on talking about that and it really made me think. And then yeah. I was like, okay, let's go, let's let's dive in. Let's yeah, see. No, no. It's all tracks. We, it tracks. We, we don't get we and I didn't even try it is because we mix up our our uh topics every time we do this. You know, we're not always doing the same thing. So we're not breaking theme in here. And honestly, mm-hmm. I I I'm not even sure exactly what that is, and I don't so want to I, try to do it on the fly. I do, yeah, we can do. I mean, yeah. when we get to the monster in the house stuff, like I think the sin taps the into sin, that. The sin yeah, taps yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but uh, Jamie, do you want to do the log line? Do yeah, you want to play with that? Say, let's go to well, the log line. Well, yeah. The only thing I was going to say though, <laughs> with the protagonist aspect, is I, I'm not sure that you know that protagonist doesn't arc, you know, because it's like the things that need fixing happen. But then she goes off the rails and ends up in tragedy because she doesn't. Yeah, arc. it's a wrong way goal, and she doesn't learn the lesson. It's it's a wrong way goal. Does that's, anyone that's arc in the movie? I don't think so because I, I, nah, so, right? I don't. I don't, I, no, I don't. It's not about that. It's not about. Yeah, it isn't. I I think because of our protagonist switch, she's not set up to need an arc. Yeah, really. they play um, with that in the second movie. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, okay. So yeah, logline discussion. Uh, let's talk loglines. So the, <laughs> the the big thing to crack with this one. So I, what I always say about loglines, I'm more interested in the story DNA mm-hmm. than the logline. And the story DNA is part of the logline. So let me tell you what the story DNA is, is there's a hero, they have a goal, there's an obstacle in the way. And if for some reason they don't achieve the goal, some horrible thing will happen. Okay, so Indiana Jones has to get the Lost Ark. He doesn't know where it is. There's Nazis in the way. And if he doesn't get it, the Nazis will get it and take over the world or whatever. Okay, so that's that's kind of hero goal obstacle stakes. And you can, you know, there's a template. There's templates out there. I, I have a template in my book, for example. It's like after a catalyst, a hero tries to achieve a goal and overcome the obstacles or else stakes, right? So I looked at the IMDb logline. I, I didn't really try to write my own logline because the IMDb logline had hero goal obstacle stakes, and I agree with them. So here it is. Here's the IMDb logline. By the way, the IMDb loglines, they're written by whoever. They're not written by <laughs> Clive Barker didn't write this, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's some oh, some some jabroni wrote this. Uh yeah. <laughs> I mean, so here Wikipedia works, right? So absolutely, yeah. Uh, so this is the IMDb logline. It's actually two sentences. Typically, loglines are a single sentence that describe all the story DNA. But 
honestly, there's no rules. If two sentences work for you, do mm -hmm. two sentences. If you get in three or four, you're probably more like a synopsis and less like a logline. By the way, I'm going to challenge this logline after you describe it. Okay. Um, a woman discovers the newly resurrected, partially formed body of her brother-in-law. So, so first of all, this is the, the catalyst part. Remember I said after mm -hmm. a woman discovers the um, resurrected, partially formed body of her brother-in-law. This this one part, maybe this is what you're going to challenge because I don't oh, think. Oh yeah, why? Why she starts killing for him to revitalize his body so he can escape demonic beings that are pursuing him after he escaped their sadistic underworld. <laughs> it's so, it, it's so it's a funny log line because it's like why is she killing for her brother? It, it's like it, <laughs> like yeah, you don't give the important information. Then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's um, a, this is a very empty log line. It's, like yeah, it's, totally. Yeah, yeah. she starts. Yeah. She starts killing for him to revitalize his body uh, so she could be together with him, I think. Is it should really be, he should be is. called a lover, not uh, yeah. so, brother-in-law, right? So I, I like that you that you found that because that's like sort of a good place to start from and sort of like ask questions about like when you're thinking about story DNA, right? So mm -hmm. this concept is way less, this talking point, and I'm sure you guys are on the same page for listeners, is way less about the poetics of the log line and how it reads and more the function of all of the pieces I, of that. I find people get into trouble when yes. they start doing the poetry. When it's yes. like and that's, that's usually not, that's yeah. usually when they fall into little cliches like, you know, will they ever find the love of their life? Or is that, you know, something Yeah. So thing. so the first thing is know. is yep. you know, a woman, they just say a woman and and nowhere in this in this log line does it like approach her from a flawed protagonist right. and so we want to we want to um we want to um look at it from that and i don't know if i would call this flawed but you know it's the stasis equals death do you want to do you want to like explain to stasis equals death and then i'll pitch that yeah sure so the stasis equals death and it goes back to the things that need fixing that we talked about mm -hmm. a moment ago Usually it means if nothing happens, if they just live out their life and no story happens, they don't find a bloody body in the upstairs or whatever, uh, then that is kind of a death for this person. That right. person is going to live less of a life. That person is kind of dead in the soul or psychologically in some ways. They need so, to move forward. So the story exists. That would be Julia. So the yeah. story exists. If your story if you're telling an arc plot story, and I would argue that oddly this is an arc plot story, it's not an anti-plot story. Um, uh, maybe maybe you disagree, but um, the if you're telling an arc plot story, you want the story that that the conflict to push them out of that stasis equals death into into a new place. And if they don't, it is a tragedy, right? Um, so so. I think Julia Stasis Eagle Death obviously is all five of those things that need fixing. But when it comes down to just distilling it to one thing, mm -hmm. I think she's trapped in a cold, sexless marriage, right? Like right. a woman trapped in a cold, sexless marriage would be for me the first part of the log line. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that's her stasis equals death from her perspective. And, and that works fine. A lot of times people try to pair like an adjective, a descriptive adjective. Mm -hmm. A depressed that, woman or a... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. Usually there's tension in the adjective pairing. Right. So maybe wife and then you put something else like, I mean, the bad example is unsatisfied wife or something. Sexually yeah, unsatisfied yeah. wife or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A love-scorned wife or... Some, right, right. some, yeah. some tension between the 
the noun you're choosing, and you don't usually use Julia, you say a woman, because nobody cares yeah. if it's Julia or Julia. And again, I'm not talking about the poetry. I was just kind of yeah. trying to point to like the purpose yeah. of this no, activity. The, yeah. the way you did it is perfectly fine, in my opinion, because there's yeah, no yeah. rules. And and it, it might be more descriptive. It's more words, and it might not work for all log lines, but I think that's a better description of it. We get what you're saying better than maybe yeah. unsatisfied. Like, what does that mean? She wants to go yeah. back to work, you know, or something. Right. Um, so, you know. She li she's living a, a sexless existence and yes. she wants to be sexually fulfilled. That's yes. like her desire. Yep. So, yep. and then the catalyst is she's returning to the place where she last had sexual fulfillment. This is the place the story shows us from the moment she walks in the door, she's fantasizing, flashing back, to the last time she was here and the last time she was here she was having sex with frank and she was super happy about it and she was fulfilled and so the cut the cut the tension there the contrast is we see her in the present and she's cold unfulfilled and like go you know her life is Which, not is stuck with those five things that needs fixing and so this catalyst brings her to the place where she doesn't know it but the guy who could answer those for her, who could take her out of the space as he does, is just there back in the room waiting for her. Yeah. Which, by the so. way, also removes the coincidence of it all happening. There. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's a, it's not yeah. coincidental, it's right? Not yeah. That's so yeah. weird. Yeah, Frank point, went there Bob. for a reason. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's that doesn't that doesn't tidally fit in the IMDb logline, but that to me is the catalyst, right? I mean, so yeah. basically the rewrite is a woman caught in a cold, sexless marriage discovers the newly resurrected, partially formed body of her lover. Yeah, but right? that's not or that's not I mean, quantifying yeah, I, the return to the place, like the why here, why well, now? Yeah, while returning to the place, she had an affair. Yeah, like the, the why here, why now? Why. I understand okay, yeah, okay. why it's not yeah, on right. the IMDb logline, but the why yeah. here, why now is like crucial Though, to the premise though honestly like it's to get so, long though yeah, yeah. So, sometimes they're the things that you do sacrifice you know yeah, what i mean yeah, like i don't like, know if i put them in there um because what what really pitches the concept is you really have to get to finds the partially formed body mm -hmm. of her you know yeah that's um, the that's so, the pitch so yeah, sometimes yeah now sometimes you do an extra that's when you pull the extra sentence out you know you're <laughs> oh, and we, this part's really important to sell the concept yeah, yeah. And then you then you might do the extra sentence. Um, but but yeah, I mean, these things can be run on, too. And it's all yeah. older. But and even like like so. So then let's talk about the goal. So like they say she starts killing to revitalize his body. That that is the goal. So yeah. that is the measurable goal. Yeah. Like that's that's, that's accurate. the physical goal. Yeah. 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 But like this this last part, so he can escape the demonic beings. That, like we all said, not, like that's that, not accurate. She's yeah, that, not doing that's somebody that for that reason. Yeah. Yes, she's, she's doing, doing it. To be with him again. Yes, right. yes. Right. There's yeah. even yeah. a line he says, and there are two lines. Now, granted, I found the two lines in the whole movie where Frank is worried about the Cenobites, and it's at 43 minutes and 48 minutes. So there's only two, two moments in the whole movie where Frank is actually articulating, "Oh, you got to help me escape the Cenobites," and then the rest of the movie, it's a it's a non-issue. It's not it's not creating urgency. It's not creating tension. From his standpoint, from our standpoint, we're waiting for them, right? Right, right. But but like from his standpoint, he's not worried <clears throat> about this. And from her standpoint, her only urgency is like, I want to have sex with you as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Like that right. is the that is the tension. That is the urgency. That's what's driving her to do everything. And he has a line 
uh, he's like, we can be together the way we were, we were before. We belong to each other now for better, for worse, like love, only real. And she holds his hand and puts his gr gross ass fucking finger, runs it across his lips, and she's lusting after him more motivated than ever. So it's definitely all about like in, in this situation, like I talk about as, sometimes as people, Twitter put it, the D. It's about the D. <laughs> the yes. D, yeah. And so it's like so like when I'm when I'm reading scripts, a lot of times people confuse stakes and confuse reward or they forget reward or they mislabel stakes as reward. But in this case, I think the stakes and the reward are the same goddamn thing, which is she's going to lose sexual fulfillment or she's going to gain sexual. Right. And as simple as that. Th there's another story that could be about demo escaping demonic beings like that could be stakes, but it's not the stakes for this. It's, movie. It's, right. it's incredible how little Frank even considers that. It, yeah, the movie. He just yeah, doesn't. He's, he's like, it's, it's only a matter of time. Just, but hey, in the meantime, and, he's and, a man on a mission. He's like, I just got to get my body back. He doesn't yeah, give a yeah. crap about anything and, else. <laughs> and, to, and to apologize for um for movie blogger seventy six who probably created this logline. <laughs> they were probably if you looked at this logline the way we just described it, somebody might look at it and say, I thought that was the one with the pinhead guy. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, where's the pinhead guy? And what I would suggest, like if this were more a selling logline, first of all, I don't even care. I, I'm like most of my logline stuff with writers is before you write the project or yep. make sure you have it's this the compass. But, so, but yeah, and then there's like saying that, but I think so. Then there's the back end version where you have to send query letters to managers and agents and producers. And and there are two different things, really. Um so what we described was more the front end version. Yes. Maybe in the back end, you could change partially formed. You could add the bit about the the box and, you know, the, after yeah. the puddles of box and the de well, demons like took a That's like describing double mumbo jumbo almost, isn't it? it I, you know, I don't think so. It's teasing enough. It's, it's selling it. And, and I think it's all part of why, because you could also ask with this one, like, let's say we cut off the demonic beings. Like, I could see somebody reading this log line and be like, What's partially formed body mean? Yeah. What, <laughs> what the fuck does that yeah. mean? <laughs> why is she killed? And then they'd ask you a question like, well, why does she have to kill for a part? I don't understand this log yeah. line at all. So the, uh, so the demonic the, tag at the end sort of gives context to the rest of it. Yeah. Right. Now we're doing the, the first step of the log line, which yeah. is the checkbox, which is the hero goal, the story DNA, the part I'm concerned with. The other part has its own math and magic that is, is case by case. And mm -hmm. I think this one, is going to be this one's going to be a bit of a doozy to fit it all in mm -hmm. um, this to make a selling <laughs> right. log line right um, and maybe you need three sentences you know yep. who knows and yep and we've talked about this a lot log lines are really hard to do after the fact yes and they they're a lot easier to do before the thing is written you know so we're totally doing it after the fact yep <laughs> So I, I think this one has very clear. The good news is I think this movie has very clear story DNA. Mm -hmm. um, she needs to kill. That's how she's getting it back. She's mm -hmm. doing it for love or physical love or whatever you want to yep. say. It's very clear, very obvious. The obstacle is she's not a killer. She has yeah. to kill people. That's clear tension. All of those things are the important things with story DNA. It, it's a very simple movie in the very best simple. way. But it's also it's amazing how you can say that, and it also just doesn't explain the mechanisms by how this stuff happens. Yeah, at man. All. Yeah, like, I love that at it's all. Like, very, it's it's clean and not clean her, at all. His brother's um, blood dripped on the floor <laughs> and seeped into the house where his heart is beating under the floor, 
because of what happened with Pinhead, and he gets reformed. In the cold open, or, yeah. I I feel like that's not a movie that would hold up to a cynical review today. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it, because I agree. Want, people today want to know every little detail. Nice of why and neat, right? Yeah. What's What's funny about it? The messiness is, is so great, though. This, this I don't one, need that explained. It just yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. This was a very influential um, story to me, and th- th- there are two th- movies that I I think I emulated very early on, like in my when I started to write, and it was this and Pet Cemetery are very similar in some ways. It's like let's kill to bring back the kid or whatever. Let's bury him to bring him back, and we have to kill people and put them. There's something about the trade off or the math of bringing yeah. somebody back from the yeah. dead. Um, in that case, they're burying him back and seeing what comes back. Um, yep. But it was funny. I dug up, I was going through my garage last year and I, I've dug up this old dot matrix printed short story I wrote, right? And it was, it was about, um, this, ta- this will take you back pre-internet BBSs, right? And it was about somebody trying to bring somebody back by uploading their soul or something to a BBS. <laughs> it was Hellraiser. It was 100% Hellraiser. <laughs> and I was mixing in this weird kind of premise paint of a BBS. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to do a horror short story about BBSs and people that, because I used to get on BBS. Do you know what BBSs I are? Have no, I have no idea what you're talking, talking about. about that is so, that is so <laughs> hilarious. Um, so BBSs, I'll do, I'll do it really quick because now I probably have a bunch of people like, what the heck are BBSs? BBSs were pre-internet for real nerds like me. Kind of what War Games was when we used to have the modems and they were shh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but basically they were run out of people's houses. They were software that was run out of people's house. And you could go on and message people and play games and do all that kind of stuff. But it was for, it was like the early, it, it wasn't the internet because it, you could only hit one place. And that's Al where Gore your Al Gore hadn't gotten there yet, right? Yeah, they weren't all connected <laughs> yet. And then, and then the internet was the next step. Anyway, I had to explain BBS. It, it, shocks, <laughs> it shocks me that you guys are too young to know. No, it's not, that, it's not that I'm too young. It's that I'm not, that world is completely foreign to me. So that's, yeah, I it prob- no it's idea. probably like, a, it, you know, it's probably right around the time of AOL, like the early AOL, like that kind of started to take away the BBSs and then the internet came and destroyed it all. So, you know, in the, in the eighties, War games times, and then like '90s up until the internet showed up. You know, so you kind of made the what was it, Hell World, the whatever the Matrix Internet one sequel sequel that everybody hates of this. Mm-hmm. You wrote that first. I did. <laughs> I made did. that first before they did it. I did, and I, I, I I've been meaning to transcribe it because it's on, like I said, a dot matrix <laughs> around here. But it was Hellraiser, and I was like, "Oh my god, I, I read Hellraiser." Basically, <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, oh, man. I don't know um, when I wrote it, but probably so, 15, 16. That's I would I would read it. Um, Me too. Monster in the I mean, we already did the book. We already talked yeah. about the book. Do you guys want to talk about Monster in the House? Now? Yes, Jamie. Yeah. So this is another one where I question the Monster in the House. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that this Monster in the House because so keep in mind. The, a monster in the house, Blake Snyder genres. Blake Snyder genres are pat are storytelling patterns that help you break story. Um, so you know you there's a bunch of different ones. There's a gold. I really feel like um, 
I used to watch Ghost Hunters and they would always describe EVPs in every episode like 10 times. An EVP is this. It's like, yeah, we watched 100 <laughs> episodes. Of, we don't need to know. I feel like that's what I'm doing. But anyway, it, and I'm always I like, don't think I podcasts are as digestible as watching. I, I, I don't think I'm anywhere near as popular as yeah, you're, you're Ghost okay. Hunters. No, got to do Monster in the House recap, yeah. dude. Yeah. And then, got and then, to. And then I'll describe what an EMF detector is. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so Monster in the House is uh, these patterns are, uh, he has a bunch of examples. Golden fleece is the one I always start with. Golden fleece is somebody trying to ob obtain a trophy, win a prize, slay a dragon. They're on like a quest. It's usually a road trip. There's buddy love, which is two people, a relationship story. They, they, they come together. They kind of each half a person, but together they're a whole, but there's complications on why they should be together and stuff like that. And there's all these different patterns. He has, uh, and I always forget the number, but I think it's 10 superhero dude with a problem. All these other. monster in the house is one we talk about all the time. And whenever there's a horror movie, we always bring this topic up because it's a really instructive one. Um, and monster in the house is there's a house that somebody's trapped in, which this one asks. there's a monster in the house and they're trapped with the monster. And there's a sin that brings about the monster. Um, Here's why where I don't think this one fits. And this is the reason that we, you know, we had Nope, which was another one that came up like this. And then I think what what did we do last time? I can't even remember. Uh, but I was uh, like, the black, black phone. phone. Yeah. Black phone. Black phone, I think, was a monster in the house. But the, anyway, the reason I, I'm not sure is because if we're using Julia as the protagonist, she's not trapped in this house with this monster. It's not a battle for her survival. In some ways, she's the monster. Um, well, so Frank, yeah, Frank needs her. He can't yeah. do it, right? So Yeah, yeah, he can't do it. So, I mean, you could look at it as Pinhead's the monster and stuff like that, but nah. I don't think... We got to go back to our story DNA, right? And nah. our story DNA tells us this is a woman that has a goal to bring back somebody from the dead. And while that's a dark theme and it is a horror movie, I am not sure that's a monster in the house. I think that might be more, I don't know. I would, I'm going to yeah. pit, I'm going to push back a couple ways. Okay. I think maybe there's an abstract monster and it's desire. She I is. I worry when you say abstract a, monster. She's though. a Trapped prisoner to her desire, desire, dude. Like she is fucking like her Cerebral. desire is yeah. insatiable, right? Like, like she is so driven to get, him back because she ha she has so much unfulfilled like sexual need i don't know that i, I was just gonna i'm, I'm you're, not, you're not wrong you're there, not wrong there, there's no wrong answer to any yeah, of this so that's not. what's fun to bring it up yeah um the reason i i would i worry about that is because i think stakes are always the abstract monster mm, in any good point good you point know what i'm saying yep that so, is that is what's in some yes. ways we could go to john wick and say revenge is yeah, the monster that's a good know. point so it's so, so obsession or or so obsession or yeah yeah so yeah. good point jamie um, but anyway i like that you bring these up because again these there's no right answers but that's also is, why it works right because yeah. it is she is trapped by something. It just happens to not be this exercise. Because, I mean, we have that's the right. house, right? The house is a very clear why here. <laughs> it literally that's, is. All that's why. Happens. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's why that's why I mentioned it before. And for the for the catalyst part, like it is the scene of her last sexual fulfillment, right? It's the place she last was happy. 
Um, and it's where she cheated on her husband, but it made her happy. Right. And, and, uh, and like, by the way, like this movie does an amazing job. It's nowhere on the talking points, but like for 27 minutes from the moment she walks in, there's this dread and tension that she doesn't know. She's desiring a reunion with this guy and she doesn't even know that's going to happen. Right. So we know we're like, oh shit, it's coming. So there's all this dread and tension surrounding like, oh, she is going to get this reunion she desires. But then when she finds him, he's a fucking gruesome monster. (laughs) It's great. I love it. She's like, the good news is Frank's here. The bad news is he's a fucking monster. (laughs) Right, right. I also find it funny that like when it does switch protagonist, the monster in the house is so simply defined. It's like, yeah, Frank is the monster in the literal. Yeah. House that, yeah. Then it's that Kirsty is stuck in. It's like right when it's absolutely protagonist, so it's simple. definitely the it, monster. In, yeah. In a strange way, this movie could be like slow burn to her, the protagonist. Yeah. You know, the the back half of the movie. Yeah. And I think that's why while we're debating this. It, the one big thing I always highlight with the with the Blake Snyder genres is these are less good at analysis tools. Yes, they're for tools exactly. to they're bring for stuff brainstorming, out. right? And, yeah, yeah for, okay. and you could see why labeling this movie up front, like we were just brainstorming. We had this idea and calling it a monster analysis, even if it wasn't, maybe helpful to us. Like, what's the sin that brings it about? Who's the monster? Yeah. What what house is they trapped in? What's special about the house? Um, so that's why there's no right or wrong answers right. while we're having this, you know, discussion about it. If you were brainstorming this idea and called it a monster in the house, even if you were wrong, it might help you come because you're writing a horror movie. It might, it might help, help you get the right answers for all these main things you need to include in the right. story. I, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost get like you there. I almost feel like like if you're writing a horror movie, whether or not it is a monster in the house plot wise, you probably should answer these questions like, yep. What's the house? What's the monster? Do you want to explain the sin? I have a pitch for the sin. I don't know if you guys have a pitch for the sin, but do you want to explain the concept of the sin, Jamie? Sure, sure. though. I I think the sin is kind of obvious in this one, so I'm curious to hear what you say. Also, the concept of the sin is pretty obvious, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, then maybe maybe I'll just be repeating what you say. No, but I'd like to hear what you What's a famous sin from a horror movie that isn't this one? Like, Um, to give people an example. I, I always say, like, corporate greed and alien. Like, you know, okay, yeah. They mm-hmm. they it's really the sin ultimately is the corporation is sending them down to investigate this thing they already know is bad, and then the monster comes about. Some sin happens that it and it's not even necessarily that the heroes or the innocent people commit the sin. And it, poltergeist is the one I always use. Yeah. Right. They, the family didn't do anything, right? The family right. well, kind of the dad's a little bit culpable, but not really. He didn't well, know. He, 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 didn't he knew know. he would have never he wouldn't have done it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, and, and by the way, if you haven't seen Poltergeist, they, we they do an build the house. On it too, by the way. Yeah, they, yeah. They build the house on top of uh, where there used to be uh, a graveyard you and they don't move the, the bodies. They, they didn't respect the dead. They didn't respect the dead. Um, so, what's the sin that brings about the monster in this movie? Frank's I, desire, right? Yeah. And I, yeah. I would think playing with that puzzle box is kind of like the. The um, I would even say it's more just his desire to find the reaches of human experience. Yeah, more than just a uh, simple puzzle box. But I, 
I was yeah, going to say gonna, what I end up anywhere with that's the note behind the note is like, okay, that's the bigger right. picture, but the puzzle box is kind of the representation of it. Okay. That brings about the monster. Well, cause originally I was like, it's not infidelity. It's infidelity is, is yeah. a, is a response to yeah, yeah. something. That's pretty good though. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, I mean that, that, that is something she does, but that doesn't speak to the core, which is like what you but just said, which I think those- it's pleasure at the expense of others pain because if you watch the movie, yep. there's all these different explorations of that. Like pleasure is always coming at the expense of another person's play- pain. And sometimes that person is you too. Um, I was that, going to say that's that, a like, good point. Mm-hmm. The infidelity doesn't work for me as the sin because no. Frank doesn't give a crap about the infidelity at all. No. Like, it doesn't matter to him. Yeah. You know what I mean? It is. It's, it's, it's nah. indifferent. <laughs> but like she's, she's seeking pleasure at the expense of her husband. Like, that's that's the sin not the infidelity part of it yeah, yeah. and it, the, the weird part to me to rectify and again i didn't do the theme for this is clyde barker doesn't strike me as somebody that would be puritanical and not be right. sex positive so right finding the ultimate pleasure i don't think clyde barker would think that's a sin you know what right. i mean like yeah, you yeah. know go for it find your ultimate right. pleasure so what is it about finding the ultimate pleasure in the in the lament configuration that is unique that brings that is the sin that brings about the monster why is that why is he putting a warning sign on that in this movie um is is always the question i ask myself like what so so like the the journey to find the ultimate pleasure is okay but be careful how deep you dig like you know (laughs) yeah the the pain that's going to come with that you go to any extreme in the universe Mm -hmm. something bad is on the other end no matter Mm -hmm. what it is yeah Mm-hmm. It's just a yeah. It's probably it's a warning of extreme, maybe going too hard. You know, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean. Like, I see yeah, what you're saying, Jamie. Like, he's not. There's no shame in no shame, right? Pleasure, but too much of a good. There's always too much of a good thing. That's, if, that's why I said at the expense yeah. of pain. Right. I, like, right. I don't really, and, and honestly, this is where my con- contextual side falls apart. But it is the 80s and AIDS is around prevalently yeah, in yeah. this. And I, I don't know right. if that comes into this or something. I, don't honestly, I didn't yeah. even think I don't of that. I think any this of us moment. could really speak to it <laughs> properly, but I'm sure that there might be an answer somewhere if you in Clive Barton yeah, interviews I, I and something like that. I, I I'm did. sure in his commentary, which I thought I had, but I didn't, um, he would say it. It does. Yeah. I can see what you're saying, Jamie, though. It seems like it, it could have like a influence there. Yeah. 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 I'm, it, it likely does. It's also why in this movie, if we're not, if we're just disregarding the sequels in this movie, the um, the Cenobites are sort of neutral mm-hmm. in that they they're not. He's like, we're, I'm kind of transitioning to the the killer, mm-hmm. sure. the killer speech, but <clears throat> he does say like, you know, we're just these beings of experience and to uh, demons <laughs> to some, angels to others. So it doesn't feel like they're even out to be like judgmental. Right. They're just right. like, hey, we're here to do our job. And that is right. The- you called, we came. We're yeah. <laughs> we're here to make you experience some shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that's like because talking about the half man, right? And the praise of Yeah, Christ, who's yeah. It's weird because it's a very odd because the half man is typically warning about the the main monster and you know i think we're all in agreement that the cenobites are really an off-screen thing they're not a threat until the last act um, you could, like would you like you could argue that 
Pinhead gives the praise to Killer Speech almost. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I know, I know, that's actually interesting. I didn't so, think that. Yeah. And, probably... and so, so just the, you know, the half man is another monster in the house thing. Right, right. And it's, um, it, Quint is the good example of a half man. It's usually that's somebody it that's, from. yeah, it's somebody that's faced the monster and has the scars to prove it. Um, and, and they have some knowledge about the monster, the overall monster. So that's why. I, so I mean, odd I, that Frank isn't the half man. Well, I I list Frank as the half man. I really? think Frank okay. is the half man. I okay. do. I mean, he is half a man in some ways. Again, it's a weird movie. I think he he does a praise of the killer speech a little bit in the midpoint. He model. does. There's yeah. A, yeah. There's a um, and and this is something I've noted that a lot of horror movies have what I call the midpoint monologue. It doesn't happen right at the midpoint, but around the midpoint. Love that, Jamie. Yeah. Right. And um. <laughs> The one I always come back to is Final Destination when you when you see Tony Todd. He talks yeah. about it's right around the midpoint. Right. Yeah. This one, it's right around the midpoint that he finally um, Yeah, it's 47 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not not quite the midpoint, not quite, but close it's close enough. Close enough. Um, and they usually give kind of a bit of an exposition y dump, or or at least this praise of the killer idea that Robert McGee uh yeah. talks about, um, where you basically are a hype man talking about mm-hmm. the monster that will show up in the end and uh screw everybody up <laughs> i was gonna i was gonna give a, like a like a hot take that uh julia is basically because because not all the half men are are fearing the monster uh we've looked at lots of movies where the half man character quote unquote monster right? uh, yeah so well yeah. So, there's sometimes no, historians monster historians um and then there's sometimes monster helpers like Renfield helps Dracula. And I think that you could argue that Julia is a Renfield to Frank. And like that Julia, even though she's our lead, is also functioning from a storytelling standpoint as the quote unquote half man who uh, who has, you know, knowledge of the monster and, you know, is it helping was, the monster. And yeah. The just fact that there's two, generally. It's fucking weird. two monsters kind of, because there's Frank. <laughs> yeah. And then there's and the then Cenobites. There's the Cenobites. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah. And, and then, you know, you could also argue Julia, um, <laughs> even though she's our lead. Right. She's like and, a and slasher so the pra- villain. And the, and the praise of killer for her would be Kirsty talking yes. about her book. Yes. <laughs> it kind of goes back to what Jamie was saying. Like, are these good people? Do we like them? Because it, it brings the fact. Well, we can relate kind of to guy. them at least. I know. Um, but I'm just saying like the the. The waves of it there. Yeah. Like everybody. That's why it's unconventional. Right. <laughs> That's why it's so unconventional. I mean, and, and I, I mean, there's totally a version of this movie that you could have that doesn't have the Cenobites in the end. Mm-hmm. Like, they just sure. finish off Frank yep. escapes. There's a big yep. battle. That's the end. There's no doorway to like the hell that opens. It's all that. Yep. It's, it's basically just a I curse. think it would function without it. Yeah. Um, that's that's what I mean. It feels I, I mean, and not knocking this movie in any way because no. like, we love pinhead and this gave us pinhead but that's well, why it feels almost the, it almost feels tacked on in some ways like yeah it does it, it feels like i uh, agree we need this because it's an 80s horror movie <laughs> and now, let's bring it in but without yeah. that we wouldn't be talking about it right now right no not at no. all i no, it, and it i gives think the movie the flavor and the weirdness and the I, extreme, actually yeah. i i think i think nowadays they'd make a movie like this like without that and it would be like an a24 movie yeah you know what and i mean I, that's what i'm saying like i think it's instructive to point to this movie as being a classic and how it does all those in, unconventional things that we're talking about and it works 
right? So like to not be afraid to do that because like you said, Jamie, it could be an A24 style movie and the, people fucking love it. The the one thing it does that that this unconventional nature does, it makes the movie very fast paced because it keeps changing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like we're we're killing people. We just kill one after another. Oh, the daughter finds out. Oh, now the daughter's involved. Now she's got the box. Oh, now Pinhead shows up. You know, it just <laughs> it's, it makes it it gives you a lot of stuff to do. Whereas if you didn't have that, you'd have to stretch what you had over a longer period of time and, and probably make it more dramatic and uh, probably more of a drama in some ways. It's yeah. also um, you could also argue the Cenobites are like world building. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Like, it, it, like that's why the movie feels bigger than just the story of well, uh, just the story of what's happening in this house marriage wise and, and like the the serial killing and everything and it's, especially when you see like the works Clyde Barker went off to like especially in his novels right, right. like they become much bigger and much thicker you know his his, his uh, 150 pages you see what he really likes he likes the world building and the, <laughs> and the mythology and all that stuff and and you could tell that's he's kind of restraining himself almost here into a classic kind of horror movie in some ways um we didn't talk about pov yet right no no and and to to create tension to to jamie's point that you just said of how it jumps around and it's constantly changed constantly changing and keeping it right keeping it fresh and and that speaks to like um this time around i noticed something that it does that makes it that creates a lot of tension which is uh, and we've seen this a lot in horror movies that we've been, you know, looking for techniques to learn from. And it is it, it it's constantly ch- swapping between giving us superior position. Like we're ahead of Julia just ever so slightly. We're ahead of of Larry. We're ahead of Kirsty ever so slightly. But we're never ahead when it comes to the box and when it comes to the Cenobites. And it does this interesting thing where every time they come up, which is about like, you know, we go like 45 minutes without them coming up. It's solid, it sort of pulls the rug out from under us and we're no longer in superior position. And we are taking in the knowledge that ju- either Julia's learning or Kirsty is learning, especially when she's in the hospital. Like we don't know what she's up for, right? Like what is about to happen, right? And that creates this extra sense of, all those types of tension, Jamie, that you talk about, all of a sudden there's such a variety of types of tension when we don't know what the fuck is happening and we're not in superior position. So I think it's a great instructive example of how you can take, you can suddenly take, you can go like 20 minutes where we're completely ahead of the characters and then you can change it where we know only what they know and then you can pop it back and we're once again, we're ahead of the characters and it works to really keep you off balance as an audience, you know? Yeah. I, I find this movie very Hitchcockian in some ways. Like it, it almost feels like it could be an Alfred Hitchcock movie, but then you throw in this weird Cenobite thing. <laughs> um, Cause it almost has like a strangers, strangers on a train vibe where, you know, she has to kill for her, for her lover yeah, and yeah, yeah. there's an affair going on and it's kind of melodramatic, but then there's murder involved and, uh, and this, and it's really a suspense thing, right? It's not as much horror yeah. as, she's got to lure somebody back to the lair mm-hmm. and murder them. And she's not a murderer. Right. And that's kind of, so we're kind of there in this weird suspense where we're, I guess we're kind of rooting for her in some ways, but then we're not, we're also worried 
because we know a murder is about to go down. Yeah, there. <laughs> it's this it's this weird kind of Alfred Hitchcock vibe. I think it has going for it at times. Also, like I was gonna say, uh, Jimmy, uh, the hospital scene for me is always a weird point of tension because I always, it's, for some that's reason, it's a weird I, scene. It's a weird scene, and whenever I watch it, I'm always like, "Oh right, like she makes a deal." These things show up completely mind blowing, right? Like she, her mind must be blown, <laughs> and then she like literally makes like a deal with them right off the bat. And I'm like, I already don't know what's happening with these things, <laughs> and she makes a deal and they agree to it <laughs> like, yeah like i'm like oh you could just do that they don't have to kill you if you open the puzzle box <laughs> like the rules that kind of are established from the beginning is if you open the puzzle box you get all tortured up and experienced yeah. up right but apparently they can just kind of do it yeah they, they subvert our, there's another yeah. subversion there where it's like nope because the tension is like she's gonna get torn the whole, apart the whole works right? right and then it's just like oh no we you can we came they have yeah they have their own their own free will sometimes to do what they feel. Yeah. That's right. So I was just like that is that scene to me. I'm always yeah. like ready to I'm always kind of like tense and then <laughs> like, oh, you can just talk to them? <laughs> like and they'll listen. Bargain. If you have good shit. Yeah. That, okay. That whole sequence always gets me because there's the weird nun thing where the nuns yeah. are like looking at her, you know, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of funny almost. It feels like a, a comedy moment. <laughs> and then then that doctor is so weird. He's like you know you'll have to talk right to... I'm like why did she have to talk to the cops it made me it made me feel like we were in an elm street situation it, it did hallucinating and it, it yeah. felt like you know pinhead was going to pop out of her stomach or something and yeah. be like ah i'm here yeah also uh real quick when we're talking about tension and i think this leads into the the next topic that we don't talk about the derelict guy oh yeah really which is he's mm. even if you want to talk about the cenobites feeling tacked on I always feel like the, the he does feel even more so, right? Like, but there's a tension with her. He creates him. tension, yeah. Like mm -hmm. she, because it just feels like something's going on that knows about her. Yeah, right, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's almost unexplainable, right? Like, <laughs> right. I don't even know where that. I like it. I don't. Know where that came. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how that puzzle piece fits. Sometimes, Jamie, do you want to recap your types of tension, and then I'll, I'll bounce off of that with what I wanted to talk about. Sure, sure. So in storytelling and when you write, tension is is a really important thing. Um, a lot of people. Will just, Jamie answer the phone? Let's see, <laughs> the tension. Let's see if it's an important person calling. Um, uh, so so uh, tension is a. It's a lot of people would say you need conflict, and and what that really means is you need tension. Conflict is a source of tension. Hopefully that'll stop in a second. Uh, so conflict is your ultimate source of tension. It's will the hero succeed or will they fail? Will the obstacle stop them? Will the stakes hit? That's the ultimate tension. It's a question that is implanted in the in the reader or the viewer's mind. And it's kind of a need. They, they need that answer. They're worried about the, the right answer. But then sometimes you need other forms of tension. And there's all kinds of things. There's like mystery. There's curiosity. There's romance, there's suspense, like we have in here. You know, it's there's a suspenseful form of, of tension. Um, so when you're thinking about conflict and you need conflict, what you really need is tension. So if you're devoid of, if you can, if you look at a scene that feels flat, nothing's happening. If you can inject it with some form of tension, whether it's suspense, whether it's conflict, um, that that's the way to punch up that scene. Yeah, this these this list. Ever since you gave it to us. 
because mm-hmm. you only introduced this to us about not not too many episodes ago. So this is sort of a new talking point in our in our show. And it's that I have found that this has been very helpful when I'm helping my clients to kind of give them other brainstorming techniques to make a scene more layered and complex because a lot of times a scene will just have one thing happening, like one mm-hmm. type of tension. And we sure. just did the everything everywhere all at once uh, episode and appropriately. So, so uh, in that opening scene, we found all seven different types of tension here, all layered and stacked on top of each other that made that scene feel so stressful. Those, mm-hmm. that opening scene, you know, it's why, why you feel so many things and why you're captivated and want to find out what happens next. But what I was noticing while watching this movie is there was another type. And I know you haven't said that these are the only types of tension, mm-hmm. but they're very good, like top seven, right? Um, I felt like we could talk about one to add to the list, which, you know, you have something called romantic relationship tension, but I feel like that doesn't really encapsulate sexual tension, um, which is another thing. And in this movie, there's not just sexual tension when Julia's on screen with Monster Frank or with the flashbacks of Frank, but there's non-consensual like sexual aggression where there's just like one scene after another, like the dinner scene where there's like five men at the table and then Kirsty and Julia and all the men are lusting after both of them and they don't want these men. And you know, it's unwanted attention it's unwanted like sexual aggression basically. And this movie plays with that type of tension over and over, right? And it even swaps it like Julia goes to the bar and she's doing the same thing. The tension we feel is that she's using sex as a weapon. Right. And we know that that's, they, these men don't want the type of- Also the uh, movers. Yeah, the mover, the movers, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, and like, yeah. And to your point that, um. You were talking about the demon guy who's following Jewel, who's following Kirsty around. That's that tension we feel, right? Like we kind of feel like she, he's gonna like attack her, mm-hmm. and there's like this non, you know, this non-consensual sexual tension. Um, so it was just interesting. Like those are types of tension that I hadn't thought about that this movie is just laden with and playing with. There's like a whiteboard for it, you know. Like you can imagine that there was just an idea board of all the ways he could play with that, you know, like. Like it's just so I, I think it's really every, instructive. Every stare in this movie means something. Yeah, and it's very every, much through the yeah, female yeah. gaze, that, through the woman's gaze, um, yeah. which again is not something we can speak to, but you can feel it, right? You feel like she's feeling attacked. They're feeling attacked when they're getting this unwanted attention, and the movie plays with that to like extremes, right? Like it plays with like desires and temptations and puts pushes that to the extremes. It plays with sexual tension and non-consensual sexual aggression pushed to, to extremes and dominance and submission pushed to extremes. So it just sort of takes that and like really twists it around and does lots of a variety of things, but yeah, you're and, feeling it. And the tension she has with, you know, it's like, it's also a very like pointed attention as in, like you said, with Frank, it's one certain type of tension because that's the guy that she desires. He wants it. But with all the other men in the movie, it's the opposite. It's, just, it's the exact opposite because, yeah. yeah and both, like, sometimes it, it swaps from. It's oddly empowering, right? Like, it, it's, she's, when she's like, when she's like right. giving them a middle finger, basically, you know, like, yeah. Like, because she, she gets to have the tension with who she wants to and mm-hmm. not, not with the Absolutely. people who are objectifying yes. her and treating her like that with that aggression. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's different. 
not something we talk about, not something that really comes up very often. And I think that sort of speaks to why this movie stands out, you know, because it plays with that so much in a way we don't really get a lot. So, yeah. Put it, add it to your tension list if it's appropriate, you know, to your story. Yeah. Non-consensual sexual tension. Yeah, man, it's scary. Yeah. Um, Premise delivery. Okay. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to just use two two examples real quick. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, (laughs) premise delivery is sort of the most common talked about thing on this show. We're 85 episodes in, and that's like, because I I think you guys would agree with me. It's sort of it's a bingo the, card one. Yes, the the B bingo covers the whole goddamn bingo card. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But it's it's the it's like one of the main jobs of the screenwriter, and I feel like it's the one thing that like the screenwriting education doesn't really talk about. And it's the in in six years of reading amateur scripts for a living. That's what I do all day. About four hours. I spend about four hours, five days a week, reading scripts from people who are either just starting out or like a couple years in. Right. So I usually I mainly deal with people who are new to the craft. And if you had told me that this would be what I found is the is the thing that's missing from a good script to a great script. I, I wouldn't have told I wouldn't have agreed with you when I first started, but after six years in, it's not structure, it's not theme, it's not character, it's it's the the thing that separates the good script from the great script in my experience is delivering on the promise of the premise. So what does that mean? Basically, in my opinion, it's at its core, it's giving the audience like people, places, things, scenarios, and dialogue they could only get when they're popping on your movie when they're diving into your story world. And it's, it's the reason why Harry Potter just keeps growing and growing. It's the reason why star Wars just keeps growing and growing. It's the reason why these franchises like Hellraiser have nine, 10 sequels and stand the test of time and live on for decades because the first one creates a world and an experience that is so unique and specific that like we could only get it right in this movie. And so I wanted you to want kind more of more of it. You want more of it. Right. So I can't I you just crave you keep coming back because um, you can't get it in your world. Right. You can right. only get it. You in can't this get world. it in other movies. Yeah. Other stories. Yeah. You can't you can only get it. So so I I I, uh, I wanted to kind of show how this movie does that. Um, it's basically you just like I, I call it the ordinary to extraordinary exercise. And that is um, like in Ghostbusters, uh, in Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, there's tar- they do target practice. So they take this ordinary scenario that's really familiar to us in cinema. It's like a cliche, right? It's a trope, target practice in a movie. And they make it specific to Ghostbusters and they're practicing learning how to use the proton pack and they just literally obliterate not just the, ta- not just the bottles, but the fence itself, which just explodes. And, uh, and that's giving us target practice that is so unique to the experience of this world that we can only get it while we're watching a Ghostbusters afterlife. So in that, in that regard, uh, the first example that I think is really instructive is carrying a mattress up the steps. So, you know, the mattress obviously has like dual meaning because this is a movie about sexual desire. So picking that object, that thing is very, 
specific. Like we're thinking about sex when we're thinking about a bed, you know, like things like that. So it could have been just a very boring scene where, you know, two characters carry a mattress up the steps and just have like a hard time. Everybody can relate to that. What they did was they made it specific to everything that this movie uh, is about. There's the movers are lusting after Julia and she, and she is like, you know, she's like, wants nothing to do with them. The, the husband is completely cold to it all. Like he doesn't care that the movers are lusting, lusting after his wife. And he's dis, he's a bit dismissive. He's like the most dismissive to Julia. He even gives them beer. Like, yeah. He gives them beer to beer. get them more drunk. Do Here, lust more. after my wife some more. Right. And then it's juxtaposed with Julia fantasizing about the last time she had with sex with Frank and she's in the room uh, where she did it. And then he comes up the steps and his hand gets torn on a nail in the door frame. And then the blood seeps into the floorboards and gives birth to Frank, dead Frank. And so this is taking a very ordinary situation that 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 we have that we're familiar with and if you pop that into any other script it doesn't work and that's the goal the goal i'm constantly reading scripts where i read this scene and i literally could take that scene even though the characters are specific to the script i'm reading i could pop that scene in any other script and it would work and that shouldn't be the case you should only be writing things that are so unique and play with your premise in so specific ways that it only works in your story. So that mattress thing, I think is a great example of how to do that. Um, so that becomes an extraordinary carrying the mattress up the step scene that right. we've never, that we've never seen before. So the second example is husband and wife having sex. I mean, it's the, I mean, wow. Like, you know, how many times have we seen sex scene in a movie between a husband and a wife? And this is, they could have done anything, but what they did was she's literally seducing him into the bed to save his life from this ghoul. From, from the ghoul, right. From the ghoul that is her brother. It, and then while they're having sex, there's dual, it's that one scene, two, two perspectives thing where she's like, no, stop, I can't bear it. <laughs> while he's trying to come out of his life and Frank is behind them approaching ready to like basically eat his brother. So like we're getting a very ordinary scenario, a very mundane thing in cinema, which is the husband and wife sex scene. And we're seeing it in a way that is so unique and specific to, to this movie, to this premise that it would never work in any other movie. And that's the goal. That's, that's, that's how you should be approaching when you're coming up with ideas, when you're coming up with characters, when you're coming up with scenarios, when you're coming up with places, when you're coming up with dialogue, which we're going to get to later. It should express the movie as a, it should be a snapshot of the premise. And this movie has endless ways that do it. But these two examples, I think are really easy to learn from. And it's a really easy, easy way to like follow, right? Like you take something ordinary, put premise paint on it, you get something special. You could, you could almost argue the, uh, the sex scene that you're talking about is like the thing you came up with first to write. Right. It's like the like, whole thing. Okay, I want to write a movie that makes sense and is awesome, but it has to have this scene where a man <laughs> is having sex with his wife and a ghoul comes out of the closet and kills a rat. 
and, and, and make that over make top sense. of them. And she's <laughs> right. saying, I can't bear it. But right. what she's really saying is, how do you can't make bear a movie this guy killing? Oh, my God. It's right. so good. It's you have to so, make a movie around that. There's so much craft there. There's so much craft there. That's writing that that's yeah. in the construction. One hundred percent. So anyway, there's my spiel on that. <laughs> Very passionate about this subject. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's it's one of the premier topics of this show. I feel yeah. Like. yeah. Now, I feel like um, I've always felt like when I get a script that is really good at premise delivery, like I'm, I think very highly of the writer. Like, oh, this is somebody that has ideas. I need this person <laughs> on my team. You know what I mean? Because they can, because if they really know how to do that, then they can come on your script. Like if I was a producer, for example, and make it better, you know, they can just be like, I got all these ideas. You can do this and you can do that. And you can, you know, there's all kinds of things you can apply. So yeah. Applying that, you know, mm -hmm. that premise pain idea. Yeah. But if, whenever I see somebody come with the premise delivery, I'm always like, Oh, this is somebody that, you know, they, in, in some ways I'd say, it feels like something that's instinctual and, and they're just like the ones with the hundred mile an hour fastball or something. <laughs> but on the flip side, I know for a fact, that's something you can learn and yeah. you can yourself into. Um, but there is something just like people who are good with character. I think there's something instinctual about that, but there's also things you can learn as well. Something intuitive. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Yep. But this for me was sort of like, even in my own work, like when I watched the first movie I've made for for context, I've I have seven feature films that I've co-written and co-produced. And the difference between the quality of the storytelling in the first movie to the third movie is the first two movies. I didn't understand why something was working so well. You know what I mean? I was like, this is cool. But I didn't understand that by the third movie, I was using premise paint. In, right, right. like intentionally and i didn't i wasn't doing that in the first two movies and it took three movies of figuring out why is something resonating with audiences and why is this why is this not working and like the common denominator was premise but delivery like something that was just okay was because it really could happen in any other movie and then something that was really like the best stuff like the gold that rose to the top in the movie was because it was like expressing the movie it was like a snapshot of the whole thing perfect if you just showed you that one moment it you could understand what the movie was about so like if you can look at your movie or script and say this can only happen here yeah that's then, then that's song. when you know you're on to something yeah. yes yeah and on top of that we talked about premise pretzels right um, <laughs> which which is is really you know, first you have to come up with that thing that only works in this movie. That's unique to this movie, unique to this concept. And then a premise pretzel is taking that same thing and like reusing it, uh, to finding another way, sometimes to bend it backwards, to look at it in reverse, to do the, you know, it's like taking the, the thing happens one way. What would be the opposite of that? Or what would be if if the good guy used it on the bad guy, what would the if the bad guy used it on the good guy, or or what if you know, <laughs> yep. or something like that? Um, but to find other ways to use it or use it in a Look different at the, way. The scene that Jimmy was talking about, then yep. eventually later in the movie, she has sex with Frank while he's wearing the husband's yep. skin. Yep, which is kind of the inverse of what yep. they were threatening Absolutely. for, right? So I mean, so like they have they have to your point bob exactly there's three there's the same idea used three different ways 
in in Julia seducing men back to Frank so that she could hit him with the hammer and feed her to feed them to Frank. And then Larry is approaching the same room and she instead seduces him away from, from the room so that he doesn't kill him and he doesn't eat him. So she's using that same tactic that is really specific to this movie. And then the final one is Kirsty lures Frank back to the room where the Cenobites get him and absorb him. So we have the same idea, the luring to the room, luring away from the room, twisted and turned and used in different ways. And we can see how the situation is changing along with those ideas being twisted and turned. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I, whenever I write like a really cool premise thing, it always nags me until I can find the payoff. Like, I feel like that's the setup and there's another payoff to it or something mm-hmm. in the back end. There's some echo of it. It always nags me if I only have it used one time and I haven't mm-hmm. figured out like the reverse of it. Right. You got to like make it do three or four things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Another, another absolutely. one is, um, and it's sort of, I'm not going to get into the not so secret weapon, but it's the the puzzle box, right? So the puzzle box is used in the cold open and brings the Cenobites and then Kirsty opens the puzzle box and un- accidentally unleashes the Cenobites again. But then she reverses it. The not so secret weapon is she puts it back to a square and then all the Cenobites are sucked to suck all the Cenobites out of our realm. So that's another premise puzzle right there. It's taking the same idea and playing with it in different ways to get multiple moments in the movie. And again, when you see those twists, that's also goes hand in hand organically with the situation in the movie changing, right? Like, like how things are escalating. Um, so yeah, it's another good technique that this movie has plenty of examples with. I was even going to talk about, there's like a whiteboard of, it's not really a premise pretzel, but there's a whiteboard of penetration as a weapon. Like, did yeah. you guys notice that? Holy shit. Sure. Yeah. yeah. They did a fucking like Clive was over there. Like how many ways can I make penetration a weapon? Then we got the door Sky frame nail in Larry's so, yeah. hand. It's Clive Barker. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, the Cenobites hooks into their victims. The giant pizza monster, pe- pizza, penis. <laughs> this isn't space balls. Um, the giant is, but speaking of balls, the giant penis monster with a stinger that's trying to penetrate Kirsty. The, the chomper Cenobite puts his fingers in Kirsty's mouth to silence her. Um, Julia hits men over the head with a hammer. Um, Frank penetrates men with his fingers to like absorb them. And then it, like in the end, like he stabs her yeah, instead, of, and, instead yeah. of having sex with her and giving her fulfillment, he stabs her and takes her, her life force. So, I mean, th- it's all part of that. I even argue Kirstie's like penetrating the other side briefly. Yep. And everything too. That's right? true too. And yeah. she slashes the skin off of Frank's face. Oh man. So that's yeah. another one, man. There's just, yeah, there's craft. It's craft. I love it. Yeah. Um, last but not least dialogue repetition. I believe this is a Jimmy. This, this is yeah. Jimmy? So to yeah. this point, you know, and, um, Jamie, you can interrupt me if, if you want to talk to, but that premise delivery also expend, extends to dialogue, right? Coming up with lines, that are so unique and specific to the whole concept that like they're they only become special in your movie. So the phrase come to daddy has <laughs> yeah. like sexual 
dominance connotations to it, right? And this right. movie plays with that. It takes that ordinary phrase, adds premise pain onto it, and suddenly come to daddy holds, becomes this really memorable repeated line that expresses this, the changing nature of the horror in the movie. So, so I'll show you, I'll give you the three examples where it shows up. So in the flashbacks, Frank, before he died, when he was all sexy, he uses that phrase, come to daddy to seduce Julia. Right. And she loves it. And it's sort of like how everything starts between them. The second time we hear it is after Frank <laughs> absorbs Julia's first kill, He's this gory fucking monster and she right. comes in and he's for the first time, he has like an actual torso and he looks like humanoid and he's like, come to daddy. And she's a little, she's scared. But then when she gets there, she allows him to touch him and she likes it. Right. She still it's like loves the midway that. point. She remembers right. the so sexuality of it versus yeah. the so that come now. to daddy suddenly holds we could only hear that come to daddy in this way in this movie. And then the third reversal is when she now, when she's wearing Larry, he's Frank is wearing Larry's skin, so he looks like Kirsty's daddy, and he's fucking scary as shit. And she knows it's Frank at this point, not Larry. And he says, "Come to daddy." <laughs> and so, it, but there's a sexual dominance dominance thing there because he's clearly, as every time he's interacted with her, Uncle Frank is lusting inappropriately after his his niece here. So. It's it's another form of premise delivery that also they they do a great job of like dialogue repetition reversal and each time it's it's used it, it's showing how the movie is changing how the how the horror is escalating and and how the relationships are changing so it's it's another great craft example that you can learn from what ordinary phrase can you take that you can use your premise to make it a phrase that every single time it's heard. You capture that mental real estate of the audience and they think of your movie and no one else. Right. Yeah. So. And also like wh who's hearing it and who's saying it is taken a different way every time. Every single time. Yeah. Like Frank even it. kind of means it differently every time. Every so, single time. You know what right? I mean? Oof, it's so creepy. Right. He, it, he, it, he next to Jesus doing. wept. It's the lines. I the line I remember the most in this movie has come to daddy. Not we'll tear your soul apart. We have such notes to show. For me, the creepiest line in this movie after Jesus slept is this. Because <laughs> because I think they should put it on the poster with with um, come to daddy. It, come to daddy. <laughs> That'd be pretty yeah. good. Uh, I think, and that brings us. That's everything, right, guys? I think. Yeah, that is. I think that's everything yeah. for Hellraiser. Um, and if anyone anyone listening, I think we've already announced this on Twitter, but our next episode is going to be Hellraiser 2022. Mm -hmm. We're gonna just we're gonna we did this with Candyman. If you if you like this sort of uh, double feature type of thing, we did it with Candyman. We sort of did it with Speed. Did it with Ghostbusters. We did it with Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we're doing this with Hellraiser. Yeah, I whatever, like it. Whatever, whatever the new one turns out to be, like I'm still kind of. You guys say it's like kind of a sequel, a legacy sequel or something. Yes, it's like <laughs> so can it's like the Candyman 2020 or whatever. Yeah, well, um, it comes out tomorrow. We're we're. We're doing this on Thursday, and it comes out on Friday. Is, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Jamie. I, Jamie, do you have? Um, I'm sort of cutting out off Bob's. Do we have anything to pitch? Mm -hmm. Do you have any movies on Huluween? I do have. You know, it might, 
I think VHS two is on Halloween. Okay. Um, but oh, no, it is. I just posted that the other day. Oh yeah, that's right. That's why yeah, I, thought, I I made a that's... post about it and I tagged Jamie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I was like, oh my god, a movie that I worked on is next to the... Storm of the Century. <laughs> like, oh my god. The Night Watchman is on Amazon Prime. So subscription okay. Amazon Prime, so you can watch that. That's no. I'm sorry. I'm getting my movies. Comedy confused. of air. comedy of comedy of horrors. Horrors. Sorry. Yeah. Is, I mean, is, this is a Halloween episode, so let's talk about yeah. our horror movies and, that and are out there. I I'm pretty sure Night Watchman is either on Halloween or Amazon Prime or both. I can't remember which. But comedy I, of horrors for the first time is on Amazon Prime subscription, so cool. you can check that out. I directed so I, one of those. Yeah. I didn't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think it's on. I don't think Night Watchman, Watchman is on Halloween. I think it must be okay. Prime. It, it used to be. I, I don't know if it still I didn't is. See, I was looking through it pretty extensively, and I didn't see okay. it. So I yeah. just think it's cool that the next movie we're going to do is premiering on Hulu. And on our show, the two of you worked on VHS 2, which is also on Hulu. And it's like, you know, the, cool, the cool thing is, like, VHS 2 is in, like, five of those menus. I was looking through it, and I was like, awesome. man, this, mm-hmm. this is all over Hulu right Writers now. Writers Blockbusters yeah. representing right right. yeah exactly (laughs) exactly yeah so cool no i'm excited for you guys i'm excited for some people to to discover it and it's cool yeah i mean watch vhs too there you go watch it (laughs) you can see the great jamie nash do his thing yeah um that's right i mean that was one of the first times i think like we really spent time together isn't it jamie was on Uh, vhs too i can't remember i guess so i mean I, I sort of knew you before that, but I can't uh, think yeah, we did. outside of a movie theater. I ever saw you out <laughs> right know. outside. Yeah. You exist outside of a theater. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then or is anything, did you have any of your movies that are oh, sh- uh, by the time this, by the time this uh, comes out, uh, WNUF will be off of shutter. Okay. So oh, okay. it's not streaming anywhere and not, you know, you know, my movies, they're micro budget horror movies, so they're not streaming. People Any, can't find anywhere, them. Anywhere. Yeah, no, no. Like none of our movies are streaming man, get anywhere. That, get them shits on Tubi. Nah, man. man the doing? nature of the beast of uh, yeah. Uh, even Tubi has uh, distributors restrictions yeah. that uh, we, with our micro budget oh. uh, production, we don't ha- necessarily have all the things that are needed. Yeah. And so that is the nature that's of the because, streaming beast. I mean, the beast. movie, my movie that's on Tubi is <laughs> not anywhere. It's not. It's a Zoom movie. Tubi's a whole other thing. Tubi's yeah. a whole other deal, <laughs> I, right? Love, lovely Molly fell out of like, you know, whoever had the deal with the distribution there. I think it's back to the producers, so you can't find that one anywhere either, right That's now. A shame. Yeah, that is a shame. But I, I just wanted to highlight that two of the hosts on the show, since it's Halloween time, sure. and especially since the movie that we're doing next is on Hulu, have a movie on Hulu, and you should check it out. So I think I think you could still watch. I think that's cool. You could watch uh, Santa Hunters this Halloween on <laughs> Hulu as well. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> or what are, what's the other one? Is there a second Santa Tiny, one? Tiny Christmas. Tiny Christmas. I, I think that's on Hulu. I think. <laughs> or uh, I want to watch. God, Jamie, you have three Slayer. movies on Hulu. God damn, dude, that's yeah. awesome. I'm you know, fanboying over here. For, for a while, every everything I had was pretty much on Tubi because they had Exists and Lovely yeah, Molly yeah. and VHS2 and like all kinds of stuff. But I think they're all gone now. I, they don't last long on Tubi. Yeah, but yeah. I want to make mean, movies just to be on Tubi. I just like <laughs> Tubi that much. I, I rewatched this on Tubi. I, I think it was on Amazon Prime too, but for on my iPad, I didn't have it. I watched this on physical media. Okay. 
because uh, i'm this, cool uh, uh, yeah this is on prime i watched it on prime because i still have prime <laughs> but yeah it, it is on tubi you're right i i had prime but i, I watched it like last night before you know and i i didn't have it on my ipad i didn't have my prime app on my ipad so i just went to tubi i was like i was watching i that. love that we're just telling listeners kind of about the I, most our viewing habits and yeah. <laughs> they, they could have stopped listening when we got to the end of the thing i was gonna say i'm kind but, of but then they won't hear the, the this week's password the code <laughs> oh, word. oh gosh yeah what is it <laughs> this week is Lament configuration. Hashtag, yes, hashtag okay. lament hashtag, configuration. Hashtag, if you tag all three of us and then make hashtag it, lament configuration, we'll probably do you nothing, make it but, to the end of this. this yeah, the the end of this, really, we're just gonna like it. Really I'll send hard. you a Hellraiser GIF well, or GIF, whatever the, it's called. I'll the end, too. I'll do the, it too. The end of this kind of is the lament configuration. Yes. Is the one. Have you yeah. made it this far? Closing you, the box and pulling the three of us it, back as into extreme it. of an experience and pleasure and pain as this show. Did. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Our <laughs> listening to us is, is an indivisible experience of right. pleasure and pain, <laughs> and you yes. will get an animated GIF. If you yes. if you open the puzzle box <laughs> on Twitter, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Amazing, incredible. I think that's everything, that's right? It. No yeah. well, the three of us will show up in your house <laughs> and tear your soul apart. We'll tear your soul apart. You'll you'll zap us Jamie's with a big cube. Jamie's totally pinhead. I'll be butterball fine. <laughs> yes, uh, I've accepted it. Uh, yeah, chatter box is perfect for me. Right. <laughs> And we'll have to get someone else for <laughs> the the lady sent up by. Yeah. She yeah. says she's credited, right? Um, okay, that's everything. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. You've just listened to Writer's Blockbusters, a screenwriting podcast featuring two professionals and another guy. Available only on Thundergrunt. <laughs> <laughs>